This is an ABC podcast. Imagine being the last one, one of a kind, your kind. That's what George was. When I knew him, he didn't come out of his shell very often. He mostly just stayed curled up on leaves. I'm sure he was very active at night, but most of the time we weren't there at night, so we didn't see him active. Because it was New Year's Day, it was a holiday, and so no one was in the laboratory. And so our laboratory technician had texted me on on the second, very early in the morning. I always get this like bad gut sick feeling when someone from our lab crew tries to contact me very early in the morning. It's usually something bad has happened. And so she she sent a text that um, that he had died. So it was a pretty sad day. Where is he now? He is currently, well, his shell is in our lab, but his body was preserved and was placed at the Bishop Museum in Honolulu. And Honolulu is where we're following a silvery trail to today on Science Friction. You can barely see it, but if you look really closely, it's there, glistening in the sunlight. Along the way, you'll encounter another world and this mind-blowing mission. Hi, it's Natasha Mitchell. And George wasn't actually a he. George was a snail. And most land snails are hermaphrodites. And actually, there's so much more. The philosopher Barbara Nosk famously said that, that animals are other worlds. They're not lesser humans. They're other worlds whose otherworldliness, she said, uh, must not be disenchanted or cut down to our size. And we, we do that too often. We sort of think about snails as having very little going on upstairs, maybe is a polite way of putting it. But at best, they're just a, a very simple version of, of human life that's missing most of the things that we think are, are valuable about what it is to be a human. I think we have to, to go beyond that and, and think also a little bit more about what it is to be a snail, that the kind of snail way of life, if you like, yeah. to try to appreciate what's being lost here as unique forms of, of being in the world. Associate Professor Tom Van Doren is an environmental philosopher at the Universities of Sydney and Oslo, whose new book is called A World in a Shell. It's this amazing read on all things snailiness, and he came to write it after meeting George. Standing in the presence of this individual being aware that millions of years of evolutionary history that had produced this species was now sort of condensed into this one little individual and that when, when George died, that would be, be the end of that. This is Little Beasts, Big Jobs. It's our miniseries on the most maligned of little critters and the good they can do. On the islands of Hawaii, snails used to be everywhere. Dripping off trees in clusters like living jewels is how some people described it. Or foraging off the tropical forest floor. So why did one solitary Hawaiian snail make international headlines when it died on New Year's Day back in 2019? George, a.k.a. Akatanala apex vulva, was what they call an endling, the end of his species. And George lived all of their 14 snaily years on this extraordinary life raft. You could kind of think of it as like a an emergency room for a species. So this is where you go when 
when you have no other option and you're, you're going to go extinct. Dr David Sisko is describing what is basically a retrofitted trailer office, about 15 metres by 4 metres. But what's inside is precious cargo. Because we have so many species from so many different locations and from multiple islands, pathogens and parasites are a real big concern in the laboratory. And so everything is kept as sterile and, and clean as possible very hospital-like. And the temperature and humidity are tightly controlled to be just how the snails like it. And we also pump water in to water the snails as if it was cloud mist like they would experience up on the mountain. Think of this as a kind of Noah's Ark. We literally bring the snails from the wild and we plug them into life support. And David Sisko and his team are Noah. In fact, they describe what they are doing as an emergency evacuation. I truly feel that our team of scientists and wildlife biologists that are working on this right now are the last people that will be able to make any kind of impact on this. For 10 years now, David Sisko, coordinator of the Snail Extinction Prevention Program run by the Hawaiian government, has spent his days and nights in this kind of permanent state of extreme high alert. You know, I, I sleep with my phone and the volume turned up as loud as it will go right next to my head so that I can hear alarms that would go off. So if anything goes above or below one degree from the set points or, or the humidity changes drastically, we all start getting notifications and they'll, it will keep notifying us until someone acknowledges it. This is not your average day job. And we've had a couple close calls with hurricanes that were, were headed to Oahu. And we've had to evacuate the lab and bring the snails to an um, administration building in downtown Honolulu that's made of concrete. We've had to do this twice now and we stay with the snails the entire time through the storm. So, you know, we're not able to, to be with our families and our own property to try and protect it. But, we, you know, everyone is kind of all hands on deck for us. and. The hours before it's supposed to hit, rather than boarding up our homes, yeah, we're we're caravanning seven thousand snails across the island to to downtown Honolulu. So it's a it's a constant struggle. You, I mean, we we have to constantly be watching the weather and power outages that might occur and anything like that, just to make sure we're on top of things and have a plan. This is really the grunt work, the frontier grunt work of saving a species from extinction. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of it is not very glamorous work. It's it's sort of repetitive work of of care, down to in the lab having health checkups under the microscope to look for mites on some of these snails, and then washing them with pipettes to wash any mites off them who might be harming them. So there's it's a, a really intimate, time-consuming work of care that's going on, trying to hold on to as many of these, these species as possible. And at this point, you might be asking why? Why is Hawaii paying so much attention to saving something so small, something so seemingly inconsequential? Well, actually, first to those Hawaiian tree snails. When you encounter them, they're, they're literally dangling from leaves like these little jewels, almost like Christmas ornaments. As the, the wind blows and the leaves flutter, you get little views of, the, of these beautiful snails on the trees. 
And our tree snails are all kinds of colors. They're striped, they're plaid colors, they're um, solid colors. We've got green snails, red snails, snails that look blue almost, all, all different colors. They're just incredible. And they've got these cute little bodies. They are glossy and they've got cute little eye stalks that, that poke out uh, when, they're, when they're active. They're nocturnal, so they'll be, they'll be up estivating, which is a word we use for, for when a snail seals up tight to a surface and, and kind of goes to sleep. Okay, so they're cute. Check out some pictures, you will be sure to agree. But is that enough to convince you of their value? I feel that all species have intrinsic value. But to convince others who aren't, aren't convinced, the, the Hawaiian Islands in general had, had over 750 species of land snail evolve here in 13 different families. And the vast majority, except all but a, just a couple of species, only exist here. Basically, North America, north of Mexico, has comparable snail diversity in numbers of species to that of the Hawaiian Islands. And the Hawaiian Islands is one seventeen hundredth the land area. So just an incredible amount of diversity packed into a really small space. Our large tree snails, the, the colorful ones, they live in trees, can live up to 20 years, and they give live birth, which is a pretty weird trait for an invertebrate, especially a snail. And they're, they're really only making one to about five offspring per year. They're, they're almost like a long-lived mammal or a bird. Their life history strategy is, is very different from a typical mollusk species from a continental landmass. So when you say they give live birth, they give birth to a little baby snail. A little baby snail with a little tiny oh. shell. And basically as they grow, well, when they're born, they're, they're the apex of the shell that you, when you're looking at a snail, the very top of the cone, they're born with just that top two worlds. And then as they grow, they have an organ that lays down calcium and, and grows their shell and they get about five or six worlds and then they stop growing. So yeah, they mm. just look like little, little mini-me's when they're born. Oh. Like a little tree ring, the laying down of tree rings. Yeah. But the role they perform in a forest is mightier than their tiny size would suggest. Hawaii's tree snails are much more than a pretty face or shell face. You know what I mean? They, they don't eat plants, but rather they glean algae and fungus and bacteria from leaf surfaces. So they probably have pretty important roles in plant pathogen control and just forest health in general. You could think of them as a little mini cow grazing on this lawn, that's this microbial lawn that's growing on plant surfaces. And all that waste is dripping down and going right back into forest ecosystems. And down on the forest floor, if you're lucky, you'll see the less colourful but no less important ground snails, the detritivores, they chomp up all the leaf litter to help enrich the soil too. They are minute, but collectively, I think they have big oversized roles in the environment. And I think that goes for all of the little tiny things. When you look at their, and you multiply their impacts across a landscape in the numbers that they used to occur in, if you allow too many species to be erased out of these ecosystems, they, they fail, they crash. At some point, we're going to lose enough species where it's going to severely negatively impact our own survival. Especially here in the islands, we rely on our native forests to generate groundwater that's put into our aquifer that we drink. Like the rain follows the forests and we need healthy forests. And snails are a component of that healthy forest. Yes, I've, I've always been struck by um, the late 
biologist Ed Wilson's comment that the invertebrates are the little beings, that, the little things that run the world. So snails, we can't underestimate their potential and possibility and their power. Especially on Pacific Islands where they've evolved for millions of years here to be an integral component of ecosystems. And so we shouldn't take it lightly when they're disappearing. And ultimately, if we can't save these little small things, how are we going to save it? the rest of it, you know? Even ourselves. Even ourselves, yeah. In traditional Hawaiian law, uh, people and snails, the kahuli, have always been intertwined. The snails are considered a good omen. They're said to sing, and their voices make their way into countless stories. So, my name is Sam Ohugan, and I am the senior scientist and cultural advisor for the Nature Conservancy of Hawaii. But I'm also a kumuoli, that is, a chanter and a teacher of chant. Kahuli is a word that means all kinds of things. Kahuli uh, can be to spiral, and so when you think about a snail shell, that's a natural name for, for a snail. But kahuli is also the word that is uh, used to mean to transform. So whether it's evolutionary transformation or whether it's a supernatural kind of transformation, the kahuli comes into play. So when a Hawaiian hears the word kahuli, they'll think about the snail, but they'll also think about transformation. That's from a great podcast episode produced by Tom Van Doren with acclaimed sound artist Jane Ullman. And we'll link to that on the Science Friction website. After the colonizers came, Things turned sour for Hawaii's snails. So in Victorian times, there was a shell collection craze. And in some instances, it was in the name of science. And so you, you have these Western researchers and, and naturalists that were over here, and they literally collected hundreds and thousands of live snails out of the forest. So you can imagine accessible areas, lower elevation areas, were completely cleaned out of these large tree snails. And I come across people all the time that have shell collections that have been passed down to them from their great-grandmother or their grandmother. But to give you an idea of how incredibly dense they were, we have areas on the island that in the 1800s you could ride a horse up to and you could just collect saddlebags full of snails, pull them off the trees like, like grapes on a vine. And if that wasn't enough, as Polynesians and then later Westerners arrived on the islands, rats came along for the ride. The rats feasted on the snails. When land was cleared for crops, that killed the snails too. Then the giant African snail was introduced to Hawaii in the 1930s, but it ate people's crops. So they introduced yet another snail to eat the giant African snail, the rosy wolf snail. I mean, humans are so messed up with the unintended consequences of our actions, aren't we? The rosy wolf snail has been an unmitigated disaster, a cannibalistic nightmare, pretty much, for Hawaii's native snails. And people wanted them in their yards because they eat, or supposedly ate, giant African snails. And so they were spread to all the main Hawaiian islands. And they're now, unfortunately, up in some of our highest, most remote, pristine forest reserves. And they're just vacuuming up our native snails. It's almost a horror movie, isn't it? That, that they, they read the trail, yep. the vital slimy trail that is the silvery sort of path 
the, the way in which snails kind of sense the world and move through the world is through that trail and then you've got this other snail, this cannibal, using it to hunt down, to track down the native snails. I don't know. I mean, it, it feels like a horror movie to me. That's a very accurate description. They look very much and hunt very much like a wolf. The scale, the pace of disappearance or extinction is staggering. You've got these snails. They evolved on these islands over millions of years after it was thought just 20 or so snails were first carried to the islands by birds. And now in just a a kind of blink of the eye, they've been decimated. George was an endling, the last of his species, and there will be so many more Georges. And so about half of the species are gone already. We have about 100 species that will likely be gone within the next one to 10 years, depending on where they are. So it's a really short interval to try and intervene. And so currently around 40 species from five islands that are are represented in our captive rearing facility. And many of those populations no longer have wild counterparts. They exist solely in captive propagation. How do you make the decision to leave a cluster of snails where they live and they they live very locally they don't have a huge range so you know how do you make a decision in that moment to say i'm going to leave you there in your natural habitat or or we're going to evacuate you in an emergency operation and bring you into captivity where you will spend the rest of your life yeah well we've had a whole series of I guess you could call them gut-wrenching experiences or nightmare scenarios where we've missed opportunities to save things and those have really influenced how we we move forward. There's been heartbreak and tears, little stands of snails they left in the forests only to return later to find no trace of their existence, probably gone from Earth forever. David, if the snails that you are keeping in that trailer can only survive in captivity, in cages, in a a temperature and humidity modified lab. Is that a meaningful survival? Is that that allowing them to uh, realise their full snailiness, you know, to live as as a fully snaily snail in the world? A, 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 A survival contingent wholly on humans. Is that really living if you're a snail? Good question. To be honest, it's probably not an ideal situation for any species to be confined to a lab scenario. They're kept at high densities and um, as best as we try to mimic the conditions, being in a cage inside of a basically a big refrigerator is not the same as being out in the forest doing what you're supposed to do. But um, you can think of the lab as not a permanent situation and that's how we view it. We try to bring these snails into the emergency room and get them healthy, get these populations, get their numbers up, fan that flame, so to speak. You can kind of think of these little animals as the last few individuals as little embers of a once roaring forest fire, and we're trying to bring them back and get them back out on the landscape. Back into the landscape and back following their own silvery, slimy trails, using them to communicate with each other in all the incredible ways that scientists now know that they do. Environmental philosopher Tom Van Doren. They're able, for example, to tell what species the snail was that laid down the slime trail. They're probably also able to tell whether it's a reproductively active snail. So they tend to not follow 
the trails of snails who, who they can't reproduce with. But even more than that, they'll, they will preferentially, in some cases, follow the trails of individual snails who they uh, haven't mated with recently. So they seem to be able to possibly even identify the, them down to the level of the individual. Unreal. And even to tell if, if that individual is sick in some ways or has a parasite. And so they'll preferentially not follow individuals who have parasites or who might be you know, less interesting mates, maybe. A whole world of communication. And you do wonder if they are raised in uh, small plastic tubs in captivity, what happens to their trails of communication? Yeah. Do they taper to nowhere? Does that mean that their whole sensory experience of their the world around them is compromised. Yeah, and that's a question that some of the biologists managing these captive environments have, have started to ask. And sooner or later, a lot of them end up being released out into protected areas in the forest. And the scientists are finding at that point that they exhibit some some odd behaviours, um, that they, they go wandering off and they seem to settle into trees that are less desirable, at least as far as the, the snail biologists are able to tell. And so they, they wonder if those early years in captivity have impacted on their behaviour. And part of the way that they might have, have done that is through never really learning to lay down and read slime trails and to, to follow one another around. David Sisko's team in Hawaii is very focused on keeping snails safe in the wild too, so they can learn to embody and express their full snaily selves. One of the most effective tools that's been used is predator-proof fencing. So relatively small fence units that have a series of barriers on them that keep out even the rosy wolf snails. And we're able to take the snails that we generate in the lab and put them back out into the wild and they thrive in these areas. Is it hard keeping the dreaded wolf snails out, the rosy wolf snails? Oh gosh, it's miserable. Yes, oh. there's no way to detect them and to remove them aside from getting down on your hands and knees and rummaging through the leaf litter and all of the vegetation over and over and over again. We've been very successful at keeping them out and the snail populations are, are thriving in these fence units. And keeping the snails you want in. Yes, yep. Collectively, we were able to release over 7,000 snails last year which I think is a win. And a, a couple of the species are back on the landscape after being extinct from the wild for 20 or 30 years. Oh, so that, that's encouraging. That feels good to put these animals back where yeah. they belong. Congratulations. It makes, makes our whole team realize we, we have quite a big team of folks that aren't just Department of Land and Natural Resources employees, but the zoo and Bishop Museum and the Army even. And it's working and we have the tools to keep these animals on earth but we really have to scale up what we're doing if we're going to make the impact that we need to have across five islands. Tom Van Doren writes about a, a pervasive feeling of mournful hope with this work. He's spent many an hour documenting your work and your life with these snails. Do you relate to that? Yes, I do, 100%. Those of us that work in conservation with critically imperiled species are, are really good at boxing up our emotions and you know what what we're seeing in the wild watching these animals that that we've built careers trying to save just just be erased from the landscape is deeply saddening there's like the instagram version of a conservation biologist which is pretty views and and neat animals but there's there is a dark side to that and and watching these animals just be erased is is quite miserable and you do get these sense of dread 
because it's not just happening at one population, but it's happening across entire landscapes, entire islands, all at the same time. Tell me about what you mean when you say witnessing is an act of hope. As somebody who spent so much of their life telling these kinds of extinction stories, trying to add some flesh to the bones of the the dead and dying to to thicken our sense of who is disappearing and why they matter, um, that's an act of witnessing. Tom Van Doren, who's author of A World in a Shell, Snail Stories in a Time of Extinction. I think it matters because it might make a difference. It might help Hawaii snails, I hope, in some small way. It might help other species. It might help to cultivate a sense of of appreciation and understanding for disappearing plants and animals more generally. But I think it's also, and this is is another part of bearing witness, it's also an an ethical act. It's also something that we we owe to these species in an important way, that that their disappearance doesn't go on completely unseen and and unnoticed. Just just slowing down and acknowledging that that this loss has taken place and that in in different ways we're all um, involved and complicit to some extent in in the loss of, of biodiversity that's going on around us. Trying to turn the tide in public opinion is is difficult, and I, I think it relies on all hands on deck. And parents, we need parents not to be, ooh, gross, you know, when they see an insect and, and stomp it. Instead, cultivate some some caring and interest in, in the animals, especially invertebrates. We have access to invertebrates in our backyards, most of us. It's very easy to get kids interested in, in insects and snails, and we really do need biologists and the general public to understand what's at stake, what we're losing on a global scale, and we need to be loud. We do. We need to be loud. And about Australia's invertebrates too, hey? Thanks to David Sisko from Hawaii's Snail Extinction Prevention Program and to Tom Van Doren, whose fantastic book is out through MIT Press in September. You'll find all the details on the Science Friction website. You can talk to me on Twitter, at Natasha Mitchell. Science Friction is produced by myself and Lisa Needham. And thanks to sound engineer this week, Richard Gervin. I'll catch you next time. Bye. Take care. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.